And a lot of people tend to think of co-living properties as hostels or motels. And typically these are not the same because these are custom-made houses to almost like attract a quality tenant. When you talk about residential and commercial, they are products out there from a financial perspective where you can get 80% lend on them. You do have duplexes where they are on strata title, separate title. And then you've got ones that are under a single, single title. Hello and welcome to Help Me Buy Property Podcast. Today we are talking about super cash flow properties. And so this is one of the most important comparison, especially in a high inflationary environment that we are in. And so we are going to talk about rooming houses versus duplexes versus dual occupancy properties. Now, before we get into a lot of details around the pros and cons and what do they really mean, drum rolls, Miss Cheryl Leong. Cheryl, how are you today? Hello, Martin. I am fantastic. So everyone wants, you know, the, the, the famous Tony McGuire saying, show me the money. Everyone super, super excited. And it's the new thing, right? High cash flow, super cash flow, high yield, high return. So, you know, we, we're seeing lots of different options. And I know we've gone through some of our previous episodes. You know what rooming houses are we've got NDIS properties as well however I think more, what some of the more common things are people are like well do I get a rooming house do I get a duplex do I get a dual occupancy and I think it's really important that we sort of define what all of those three are as well definitely let's kick off with the co-living space or rooming houses or micro apartments or micro units it has all of these different names in different places and so let's help users understand Cheryl what does roaming house or co-living space really means yeah and and you're right I mean they're, they're different names you've got rooming houses in Victoria you've got HMOs house of multiple occupations in NWA in Queensland you do have co-living but they're also known as boarding boarding houses as well New South, New South Wales, you have what they call a new generation boarding houses, but they're also co-living properties. So everywhere, each state, unfortunately, there's not one standardized regulation around it. And with each state, there's also, it specifies, you know, the number of rooms you can have and the number of occupants. So really, really important that you're across that as well. You don't have to be across it in detail. But just to be able to know whether you can provide a five-bedroom five rooming house, six-bedroom, or a nine-bedroom as well. Is the true concept, Cheryl? What is the real concept in relation to co-living or rooming houses for from a layman? I think it all started out with shared accommodation. And I think we've moved from shared accommodation in terms of sharing bathrooms and, and kitchens to I don't want to share bathrooms. I don't mind sharing a kitchen, but I want to cook my own stuff. Co-living has come from the, the, the word community living. The idea of being able to live in, in, in a community of some sort in terms of what that, that living in, like these days co-living is really almost like separate rooms with maybe an attached ensuite, little serving, serving, serving area. 
but then an, a space like a living area or kitchen where people can come together as a bit of a community if they so wish to do that. And ultimately, co-living generally provides more affordable places to rent. Definitely. And a lot of people tend to think of co-living properties as hostels or motels. And typically these are not the same because these are custom-made houses to almost like attract a quality tenant. Basically, that's the mindset behind some of these things. And so you would see them popping around hospitals and, you know, universities and, you know, major infrastructure projects, etc. And so there is a slight distinction between the two when you talk about co-living properties or, you know, micro-apartments. It's interesting that, you know, every state and every council has a different way to look at this. <laughs> it's, it's a funny story. When we were trying to figure this out in Adelaide, one of the councils thought that we were building brothels. And, and so, which is, which is a fair comment, right? Because, you know, from their perspective, why are you adding an extra ensuite to every bathroom? Like, why do you need it? And so we had to go back and convince them because they had never heard of co-living or rooming houses. They have heard of student accommodation. So, Yes. And students don't need separate bathrooms, but apparently brothels do. Okay. Well, it's something I've learned today. That's a high, that's a high cash flow investment as well i would think not that something i want to get into but it's not on the list today so we'll stick with the program my dad is listening you know and this is not what i do i promise (laughs) (laughs) that's right you know those memes that like you know you're like what i do what my parents think i do what my friends think i do and then moss is there going yeah i develop brussels yes no definitely not and so interesting interesting concept and so when I was doing my research in relation to the co-living side of things, of course, some of the data sets that I was looking at was almost 25.6% of single population in Australia as of today. And so, of course, the demand is definitely there. It's a massive opportunity. And so, of course, you know, with higher interest rate rises, people are looking at various different av- avenues to push yields up and, you know, co-living spaces comes right to the top. And so we understand how they are worked. They're purpose-built, but they're also conversions. Talk to us a bit about conversion, Cheryl, as to how does conversion works for a living property. I, conversions are generally properties where, you know, probably larger properties that maybe, you know, might be five or six bedroom. And you five people going, I don't get very much yield out of it. I might get a standard house yield of, you know, $500 a week. But there's, there's plenty of space. And, and I guess the regulations particularly say somewhere in Victoria, has allowed oh, operators to be able to come in and convert them into rooming houses, generally adding more rooms, more toilets, and so on and so forth, which then, you know, all of a sudden you've got six occupants that are renting it as opposed to one. You can imagine the yield on that. That makes it incredible. However, these conversions, I often call them sort of the Frankensteins because there might be like a cubicle toilet here or a, you know, a, a fake wall here. The only them are done really, really well. There are others that are not done very, very well as well. So really important that in any case, whether it's a conversion or a purpose-built rooming house, that you do need to have an operator's license and they do need to be licensed rooming houses. So doesn't matter what it is. So you can't go around just popping walls up in your house and renting them out to like 12 people. That's a big no, no. Definitely. And so there are, there is, 
legal, legal hoops that you need to pass through and there's compliance that you need to fall through. You know, there is conversions that has to comply through class 1B and they're not typical, you know, normal houses, which are class 1A, so there are fire restrictions and soundproofing and all of these things basically come in, identifying where the exits are, etc. So there is a lot that goes in there. And so it's not just about any house that you would pick and convert it. And so a lot of people think that, you know, and we'll talk about some of these things as part of the cons, but let's start with the pros of the co-living properties. Clearly, from my perspective, you know, when you talk about co-living properties, it's the the best of the both worlds. When you talk about residential and commercial, you know, they are products out there from a financial perspective where you can get 80% lend on them. They are residential, sit in the residential zones. And so, of course, you get equity growth coming out from those residential properties or the land appreciating in value. But they attract commercial valuations too because of the way the, the valuations work because you can't compare these to a normal house. And so... It's the best of the both worlds. You know, every time I look at roaming houses, yes, the yield is great and, you know, the returns are awesome. But, you know, usually there is this, there's this stereotype around commercial properties where they don't grow in value as much as residential properties and their growth is linked primarily to, you know, you know the rental returns that you're going to get out of a commercial property or as you're combining the two benefits together in this one. Absolutely. And, and, and because you have, potentially multiple incomes from one property, it diversifies the risk, right? So there's like, you know, if you've got six incomes and you lose one tenant for a short time, you know, you're you're still ahead. You're still ahead. And I find that and here's another another pro, and that's pro number two, because it is a, an, an affordable product, which generally is located near transport hubs, industrial hubs, universities, and so on, the demand for it is quite high. So your vacancy is actually really quite, quite low. So that's my second thing. It's the diversification and the fact that, that there's, there's such a huge demand for it. Definitely, definitely. And also, like, from my perspective, when you talk about living properties, you're almost forking out the same amount of money for a traditional house. And so it makes a lot more sense you know, when you're talking about cash and cash returns, typically it makes a lot more sense to build something for a super cash flow perspective that is going to give you growth at the same time. Of course, you know, I always come back to, you know, what does your strategy look like and how do you follow your strategy? You don't start with a roaming house in your property portfolio, right? But, you know, having one or two of these in your property portfolio does magic to your property portfolio, right? It provides that sustainability, provides an option to scale your property portfolio quite you know, rigorously, right? Because ultimately, if the valuations are linked to commercial valuations, we know the rents go up, the valuation automatically goes up. And so you don't have to depend on the market to dictate a higher price point, similar to an equity growth that happens in residential properties. They grow up in value like almost automatically every time you're doing a revaluation, provided that the rents have gone up in the areas, which is like 5 to 10% rental increases quite normal in these days, especially look at the last sort of three years yeah and the fact that they said you know because these are purpose not only are they purpose-built most of them are fully furnished so for a lot of people people that are a little bit sort of more transient in their lifestyle it becomes incredibly attractive and hence that's what also drives the demand and and you know when you've got a quarter of the population that are, are singles you know you can have couples in rooms as well like they sort of go 
I don't want to have a big mortgage right now. I want to save and so on and so forth. So that caters to that particular market really, really well. So those are the pros. What are the cons? Well, I think the biggest con would be a non-purpose-built shared accommodation. You know, I'm not a big fan of conversions typically because, you know, as you mentioned at the start, you know, they are almost like Frankenstein, you know, sort of conversions where, you know, you have higher maintenance, you get higher turnover, and you're almost paying the same cash on cash, right? So let's take an example of a $600,000 house that you bought. You would have paid about 150 to acquire that house and then another like fifty dollars or $60,000 to convert it. And so you're almost $210,000, $220,000. You could have acquired that nine-bedroom, nine-bathroom for the same amount of cash, right? You know, provided that you have visibility. And so, you know, I always question why would people do conversions, buy and convert them, Yes, you, if you have a property in your property portfolio and you're trying to hold that property and you're converting it, that makes a lot more sense, right? But buying it for the sake of conversion, that just naturally doesn't make sense. And I feel that that's the con. Yeah, absolutely. I, I totally agree with you that it, it's more social where you've got a property in your portfolio that's, you know, um, that's not performing well. And then if you can convert that from a 500, 500 a week rental to 1500 a week rental, then Absolutely. You might have equity there in there. You're leveraging off the equity to pay for the conversion. It, that makes absolute sense. But to be able to purchase a property for for the purpose of converting it, it doesn't anymore. I'm talking about like if you're going to convert it in, in the next six to 12 months, you might as well build something where it's brand new, it's high quality, more, you're going to attract higher rents as well. The second one that you indicated at the start is these different sort of definitions around different councils, different states, you know, different requirements. You know, councils can be so, so tricky when you talk about the approval process, if not not, that, not done right. You know, there are so many horror stories where, you know, houses were built in anticipation thinking that there was no council approvals required and council came in and shut it down because, you know, they were, they were not registered roaming houses or to certain extents where, you know, people have built it and they were registered and then council came back and deregistered them. You know, there is this Brimbank council. And so you have to be really, really careful in relation to following the right rules with the right council and the right state. Yeah, absolutely. And there are, there are cases where someone's been operating a rooming house and council has come in and shut it down because they didn't quite follow the rules as well. Which is which is really quite devastating, right? Because you invested a good amount of money into into this and set it up, and when you sell it, because you can't sell it as a rooming house, literally you've got this huge huge house with lots of bathrooms, and you sort of go, unless a family with grandparents and everything want to move in, it really narrows down. Which really narrows down the the market that you're selling to. So the values tend to go down. So yeah. Council, council and approvals can, can be tricky. Yeah. And look, I mean, one of the trickiest things that I've heard from the council, and, you know, this is a real life example, is the councils are being greedy around this as well. You know, we hear about Morton Bay councils where, you know, they'll send you five different council rates because they treat each of these rooms as an independent living or an independent unit or an accommodation. And so, you know, some of these things that people don't know up front and they might be caught out after they've done everything and sort all the approvals, et cetera, everything. And then all of a sudden they realize that 
instead of paying $2,000 in council rates, they are paying 2000 multiplied by six, which is twelve to $15,000 in council rates, for example. And it kills the cash flow completely. And so, yeah, there's a lot of work that requires. And I always feel that there is a, there is a black hole <laughs> there's a dark hole that comes to knowing exactly what is required from the council's perspective. Yeah, absolutely. And what what's the 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 last con? Not saying that these are the only ones, but these I think were would would top of our list. Look, I think managing them could be quite crazy. Like especially if people try to manage it themselves. I've seen oper- operators charging like 15, 20, even twenty five cent management fees on these in order to manage them of course they are not normal houses to manage you know there are individual leases and yes they are not short-term leases majority of them are long-term leases but operators are out there to milk it as much as you know the builders are and as much as you know the sales agents are so it can be a nightmare because you're almost like married to an operator right because you don't know how to run them whereas with the traditional house it's a lot easier because you know you can find another property manager who would run it for you and i'd say i mean i i Probably, I, I do feel that there is. It, it, there's obviously a higher property management fee, although I do know as well that there's a lot that goes into it because it's not about property management; it's it's people management because you're you're trying to manage, you know, six to to nine different personalities in a property, and because there is sort of higher turnover as well, you've got to make sure that there's the right mix of people. So. It is a high. It is a high fee, and, and it, what's important is that you've got to just ensure that you've got the right type of operator who really understands this space. I do feel that if someone charges too low for it, they might not actually know this the the market and this space really well to do it justice. So it is. It's more so the fact that it is a high. It is you know there's a higher income, but there is a higher expense to running it as well. And typically, you should treat this as a business, right? And this is a business expense, you know? And so, if you can manage the business yourself, do it yourself, or let someone else manage it, right? Let's talk about dual occupancies or, you know, people putting in granny flats at the back. Before we dive into that, Ross, I'd love for us to define what dual occupancy is. I used to get confused, and it could well also be because there are different councils that have different. Uh, definitions for what a dual occupancy is. So, clarify with us in this in the context of this conversation what a dual occupancy is. Well, dual occupancy is typically a small roaming house. You know, that's the easiest way to explain it, right? And so, if I try to explain this in the in the com- common possible sense, you know, you take a four bedroom, two bathroom house, and you split it into a three bedroom, one bathroom, and a one bedroom self contained unit basically, and you're getting two tenants in or a one family and a tenant in basically, you know, to share that house. Dual occupancy is a lot easier because, you know, in some states, councils allow you to do that. They will give you a separate meter and so you can pass on the bills to the relevant tenants. There is not six of them. There is usually a family and a small, you know, one person or a couple living in these. And so they are a lot easier to tenant out. You know, there is a lot less risk in converting them. Majority of these are conversion homes. Dual occupancies. There, there. You are hearing about them a purpose build coming up a lot as well. Where, you know, the idea is that you know you are living in you know three bedroom, two bathroom, for example, and then there is an attached, you know, one single room that you're renting out to pay for your own mortgage as well. And so that's where this concept is really coming out. 
in the owner-occupied space as well of dual, dual occupancies. The key thing with dual occupancy, the key difference between dual occupancy and a granny flat is that the dual occupancy has to be under the same single roof line. And so you can't have it separate. And so that makes it so, sort of, a, you know, my definition of, well, it's almost a rooming house because, you know, it's under the same roof line. Yeah. Yeah. And you find, I mean, I guess let's just dive into the pros, the pros then. What are some of the pros that you feel compared to rooming? Because we're doing a comparison here. Yes. Well, I mean, typically, uh, if you start from, you know, the conversion side of things, they are a lot easier to convert. You know, if you get the right floor plan, I think that's the most important thing. You have to find the right floor plan. If you don't find the right floor plan, the conversion cost could be quite extensive and expensive because you are going into structural changes. But usually it's two walls and a door at the front. Basically, that's what it requires in an application to the council, which is quite easy from when comparing it to conversions for rooming houses. Now, of course, you know, the, the conversion costs for granny flat, because you're going to build it a brand new, is significantly higher. And that comes more towards the cons rather than the pros. And so it's an easiest way to push the yield up on a, on a single property. If you have a property that you're that you've bought in to hold, say, for example, a development property that you want to develop, but the yields are quite significantly converting into a dual occupancy rather than a full-fledged roaming house because you don't because that money would be wasted if you're going to take the house down anyway. It's, it's a very important pro in that space. So being able to add, add that value and, and, and potentially income as well. Another thing I like about dual occupancies, and I... Uh, I think this is great for people who are getting into the market who may want to buy their own properties, their their own home, but also be able to leverage off renting another portion. And that could be just a standard long-term rental or even short-term rental, right? So if you're living in an area where where you've got lots of visitors uh, or tourists, you could get some high cash flow as well. And so what does that do that helps you pay off your mortgage quicker? as well so i like i like that there's that option whereas compared to rooming house you can't live in it whereas well like i do want that idea of ownership early on that i can own and rent out at the same time one thing i should caveat this out and again this is not to be constituted as tax advice is that you do expose yourself to capital gains taxes even though it's your principal place of residence if you're sharing a portion of your house towards rental and so I shouldn't be saying this out loud in an open platform, but you know, a lot of these instances, people are basically doing this under the table and they're not putting it out there for rent on a particular portal because they're trying to hide these rentals from the, the taxman because you know there are CGT implications to a lot of these instances, which could turn into horror stories as well because you know then you're not taking any bonds. You know these people can trash your properties, etc. All of these. You're managing, you know, private tenancies or illegal private tenancies that you shouldn't be doing it in the first place. Um, rules in Victoria are quite significantly harsher. And so, you know, the tenancy laws in Victoria are super harsh when it comes to dual occupancy and granny flats, both of them combined. I know certain changes have been made right now where, you know, under 60 squares, granny flats have been allowed now in Victoria. Uh, without any council approvals. But again, you know, the tendency of that sort of thing still is a cumbersome sort of view of the world. So what Moss is saying, do it all above board. Of course, yeah, 100%. Yeah. The, the last of the pros when you talk about dual occupancy is, you know, the way 
Of course, it's easier to, you know, property manage and property rent because, you know, they're typically a normal rental, but it's also easier to resell them because, you know, if you put two walls up, you can put two walls down, right? And, and convert it into a normal house and then sell it back again into the market. And so, you know, that sort of flexibility of renting it out easily, selling it out easily is definitely a problem when you talk about roaming houses or co-living properties. Yeah, absolutely. And what are the disadvantages, the cons of dual occupancy? Look, I think the biggest disadvantage when it comes to dual occupancies is that, you know, not all states allow this, right? And so you have to be really careful as to where do you want to test and try this out. Perth or Western Australia, there is a lot of them and, you know, Western Australia councils, majority of the councils allow these. But as I said, Victoria, you know, if you try doing that overboard, you know, councils would penalize and punish you on some of these things because they're, they're not allowed. So you have to be very careful as to what, where are you trying to pull these off, especially with granny flats. There is this stereotype around granny flats that, you know, as soon as I build a granny flat and the value of my property is going to go up, and that's truly not the case. You know, majority of the times a granny flat might cost you $150,000 and the value of the property only goes up by 80 or 50. Those are the two big cons from my perspective when you talk about dual occupancy properties or granny flats. What do you think, Cheryl? Anything that you want to add towards the con? With the dual occupancy, it's... I find from a, if you're comparing it to sort of something like a rooming house, uh, the returns aren't as attractive for me. You know, I think it's, it's, a, I think it's a really safe... It's a safe investment if you are, you know, buying a property. At least it's not just based on one income. But I do feel that you can you can be a bit more creative and you can can garner more and better yields from other property assets. Yeah, I I completely agree. I I don't disagree. I think it is a low risk strategy. But as we discussed in the in when we were discussing about the pros and cons of roaming houses, that it just doesn't make sense to buy a roaming house to convert it. And so if you're thinking about conversions, then naturally this is the easiest way to push the yield up in order to still get the best of the both world around equity and yield. But if you're going to do a full-scale conversion for roaming houses, again, you know, you might as well just go out and buy a brand new one. You know, why would you bother converting it at all? Exactly. But again, it's not a terrible investment. It is more going, well, if it's still a smart choice, just to be able to be able to consider what are, what are the other options as well. Definitely. I think for people who are in their foundational stages of property investing or first-time property investors who are trying to chase short-term growth, I think you know it's, this strategy works really, really best for them because their risk appetite is not that great. They're still in their low-risk appetite zone. They don't have a lot of money to spend on co-living properties or rooming houses. And so naturally, buying something where they can push the yield up in maybe year two or year three or year five, I think that basically gives them a lot of advantage in holding these properties for a really long time so that you can cash out on equity and go back in again. Duplexes, let's talk about that. You know, let's define duplexes first for the sake of the users and listeners. So typically duplexes are, you know, almost a mirror image of each other, almost. You know, sometimes you do have one that's single level and one that's double story, whichever. Typically, side by side, generally they are they are attached. There's some sort of a common common wall, and then you do have duplexes where they are on, you know, strata title, separate title. And then you've got ones that are under a single single title, 
And today we're talking about the ones that are on the single title. Let's go through some of the pros of purchasing a pair of duplexes. Is it a set of duplexes or is it a pair of duplexes? I see a lot of duplexes being sold out in the open with the notion of them being a, a development property where you can manufacture equity. And typically I don't agree. I think you are dependent on the market's growth to dictate where, where the duplex is going to grow up in value. And so what they are doing in a lot of these instances is that, you know, you're buying a brand new land in a greenfield suburb or a brand new growth corridor and you're building a house or two houses at the same time. You know, one is a three bedroom, two bathroom, and another one is a two bedroom, two bathroom, for example, not even a mirror image trying to push the yields up and the depreciation up. And, you know, that's how the image is portrayed that, okay, you build this and, you know, you lift the equity of the house and you'll, you'll create a lot of income for yourself. Yes, great. You know, having better returns than traditional houses is, you know, of course, great. Property management is definitely a lot easier because you have two properties that you're renting out separately. And so it's a lot more convenient from that perspective. And definitely, you know, it's a lot more easier to find tenancies. You know, you get a lot lower vacancy rates because you're attracting two typical families. One may be slightly bigger family, other one is a sm slightly smaller family. And so, you know, these are some of the key pros when you talk about, you know, duplexes you know, on a single title. Yeah, absolutely. And what sort of tenancies can you expect in these, which are, are actually quite, quite beneficial? Look, I mean, tenancies, they would rent as normal houses. And so they don't rent as units or apartments. They rent as usually normal houses. And I think that's where the best bang for the buck is. You know, where you have two duplexes, one is a three-bedroom, two-bathroom, and another one is a two-bedroom, two-bathroom. They build basically attract the same level of rentals as a three-bedroom, two-bathroom on a decent-sized land. What a person has done or what a developer is trying to do or an investment advisor is trying to do is buy a small piece of land of 400, 500 squares and try to squeeze both of them to push the rental yield up. And so typically what they do is, you know, there is usually valuation shortfalls because we all know that it triggers single line valuation because from a valuer's perspective, they cannot find a similar comparable houses. And so they see this as an overcapitalization. By the time people realize this is usually too late because they've they are usually two-part contracts, right? There is a land contract and there is a build contract. And so there's a really big dependency on the growth to come through the area, you know, in order to price this up. And so it's almost like, you know, there would be sales in the area where people are chipping money from their own pocket. And then the first, say, 10 or 20 becomes the sort of the foundation for the valuer to say, oh, yeah, people are buying these at that price point. And so they'll, the valuations would start tracking up. And so it's usually year two or year three of, you know, these duplex projects where the valuation starts stacking up. But they would be the first five or 10 where the valuations would have a shortfall and they would have chucked money from their own pocket. So are we talking about the cons? <laughs> Oh, yes, I think I, I transitioned into the con automatically. That <laughs> <laughs> was, was sort of a, a gradual flow into into the con. And I'd say as well, there, we talked about valuation shortfalls. So just to, just to quickly summarize, so one of the cons was valuation shortfalls potentially. Quite a few, particularly of the new types of duplexes, they're being built on smaller and smaller lots. So you, you're getting quite tight houses and you know for some people they don't mind that 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 that, that provides affordable affordable rentals and affordable housing but they 
compared again to a rooming house where you're talking about the yield, then because you typically are renting out almost like two houses, right? And so it might be a three-bedroom house. It still rents out as a three-bedroom house. You've got two incomes. So again, the con is that, you know, you've got two incomes. However, if one goes down, then then you're only reliant on the other one. And generally, depending on where your your rates are at in your loan, there may or may not be a bit of a shortfall. And they're not cheap, right? I think, you know, a lot of people think that, oh, I'm getting a duplex built for $850,000 or $900,000. They're not cheap. And so the amount of money that you're coughing up is pretty much exactly the same amount of cash that you could get the roaming house for and get much better yields you know, against the similar sort of investments. And so I'm always intrigued by why people would choose a duplex. I'm the most biased person when you ask me because clearly you're not getting similar appreciations because, you know, these are still residential valuations. They don't attract commercial valuations. And so what I find from my experience in my client's perspective that every time a client has gone out and bought a a duplex in the past, they haven't gone up in value quite significantly up. Uh, the only places they would go up really is where they're built closer to water or there's a lifestyle and, you know, people are attracting Airbnbs, et cetera, type of investments. And so an investor would come in and emotionally pay a bit higher amount because they're trying to run an Airbnb business out of it. Perfect example. Yeah. Yeah. Those are great. So we've covered our three pros and then our three cons about duplexes. And, you know, a lot of people are really comfortable with that notion of duplexes. They might end up staying in one, renting the other one, similar to what we talked about, the dual dual occupancy. And again, this all comes back down to your strategy, right? So as much as we, we, you know, we're we're very much, as you can tell, we really like rooming houses as one of our, 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 you know, property assets. But in saying that, I mean, We've built duplexes as well where we were allowed to, you know, we were able to live in one and rent the other one out. You might have family that you want to have next door to help with help with kids or whatever. So it really, really comes down to what works for you. Assess and do the comparison and then work on how that is helping you get you closer to your long-term financial goals. Definitely. And ultimately, all of these products have a space in the property goal that you're going to follow, the property plan that you're going to follow. I personally like small conversions too, right? You know, where you are converting a four bed to a bath to, you know, a, a dual occupancy typically to hold the development property for the future, right? So rather than keeping it negatively geared, that's an easiest way to, you know, convert it into a positively geared property. So. You know, it serves a different purpose. It's not there, from my perspective, it's not there to generate cash flow for the property. It's there to provide sustainability to the property portfolio. And so I chase roaming houses to add more cash flow to the property portfolio. And, you know, and that's where the difference of opinion would come through as to what are you trying to achieve with each of these properties adding to your property portfolio. And you, and as a user or a listener, can only answer this question based on your own strategy. And that is where the mic drops. Well, share your stories, you know, what your stories are in relation to, you know, roaming houses, co-living properties, uh, duplexes, dual occupancies. Thank you for listening to us. If you have any questions, comments, you know, please reach out to me or Cheryl in relation to co-living properties or any of these properties. Thank you for listening to us. Keep smiling, stay safe, keep investing. This is Cheryl Moss checking out. Adios. Ciao.